Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover the graphic novel adaptation of The Dark Tower, Gunslinger Born. Let's start the show! The Gunslinger Born is the first Dark Tower graphic novel. It covers much of the bulk of Wizard and Glass, focusing on Roland's rite of passage with Court as he becomes a gunslinger, and then his journey to Magus with Cuthbert and Elaine, where they face off against the big coffin hunters. Along the way, Roland falls in love with Susan Delgado. The Wizard's Glass is introduced. Athene is explored. The Witch of the Coos makes an appearance and Roland loses the love of his life. All in illustrated narrative form! Greetings, constant listeners! Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, so this is a little bit of a change of pace for us, uh, getting away from Stephen King written novels and short stories into a based upon Stephen King writing. It's very close in many cases to what he's written. Some of the words are the same, but it is entirely different and in a graphic narrative form. Yeah, this was a new territory for me. I haven't read a graphic novel adaptation before. It made sense for us to cover this, I think. It's definitely related to The Dark Tower. I mean, it's a retelling of the story we know and wanted to see it in a different format. We had a lot of requests for, are you guys going to be doing the comics? Because I know there's a lot of people who have found their way to this, so we're glad to do it here. Is there anything you want to say before we get into the meat of this, Jay? I'll start off just by setting the stage that I did not like this comic book adaptation. I had a lot of trouble with it, and I'll get into the, some of the details and the reasons why as we talk through the episode. But to keep me from going too far off on any rant about any one part of this, I've uh, asked Sean to blow the horn of Gilead to rein <laughs> me in if I if I go too far. And uh, if he finds himself going off on a rent, I'll, uh, I'll, I will also blow the horn of Gilead. So we've got the, the horn at the ready to keep ourselves uh, under control. I've got my lips puckered up to blow that horn when necessary. All right. Well, as we often do, let's start with a little bit of history for those of you who might not be familiar with this. In 2007, Marvel acquired the rights for The Dark Tower, working with Stephen King. And in one of the author's notes, in the at least in the end of the edition I read, uh, King talks a little bit about why he wanted to work with Marvel, etc. And Marvel actually not only did uh, a bunch of Dark Tower comics, but they also did um, an adaptation of The Stand as well. And it's interesting because it's a combination of adaptation as well as new material. So the Battle of 
Jericho Hill is a comic that's introduced uh, later on. We're not going to be covering that today, but what we've got is really an adaptation of most of the middle part of Wizard and Glass. And Marvel brought their A-team in for this. So they've got Robin Firth as the primary plotter of these graphic novels, and she obviously wrote The Concordance of the Dark Tower. Uh, Peter David, who's very famous for writing The Hulk and some of the mutant books for Marvel, is the writer. And Stephen King served as creative director. And for this initial graphic novel adaptation and a couple of the the next series, Jay Lee, who is a fairly well-known and iconic artist, did most of the drawing for this. Uh, All in total, Marvel did 15 arcs in one shot. So each arc was about five to seven comics. This first one was seven issues. And recently, just last year, I think, or maybe it was earlier this year, Marvel lost the rights to these comics and it is now owned by gallery 13 which is an imprint of king's publisher simon and schuster so they've begun republishing this so there are lots of versions out there whether you've got the floppy comics that came out monthly to um i read this on my kindle i know there's a giant omnibus that collected all of these and now like i said gallery 13's got it yep and i read a hardcover collection of the seven issues of the comic called beginnings one Yeah, so I think they started titling them differently as well. But this first arc, which is seven issues, is called The Gunslinger Born. And like I said, it's mostly Wizard and Glass. So, Jay, why don't we talk a little bit about the adaptation of this? Because this is a, for the most part, a fairly straight adaptation of Wizard and Glass without the bookended stories of Blaine at the beginning and the Emerald, the Emerald City Wizard of Oz piece at the end. It's it tells the story that that Roland tells to the quartet there. Sorry, we don't see Susanna or Eddie or Jake. It's just straight up, and it's actually told via a narrator in this comic. Yeah, this truly is an adaptation. This is taking all the details that are in a, what, 400-ish page story and compressing it into like 120 pages of, of comic book pages. Yep. So just like adapting to a tv series or a movie you're gonna have to make some choices about what to keep what to leave out maybe combine characters maybe streamline plots or drop whole plot threads entirely and in those choices there's compromise and sometimes uh you can make good adaptations and sometimes the choices that you make either whether it's because you have no choice or i don't know Sometimes they don't work out as well as you'd like. You're beating around the bush, Jay. Get to the good stuff. I'll stop before you blow the the horn of Eld. So why don't we talk about the different aspects of the adaptation? So there's a couple pieces. There's there's the writing, and then there's the art, and then there's the overall purpose of the adaptation. Mm -hmm. I think King says in his author's note on this that Marvel was hoping to maybe introduce the Dark Tower to new readers, somebody who might pick up a comic, but maybe had not read the books before. And this could be sort of a entryway or a gateway into, into the comics. Just based on that, what are your thoughts on the audience for this? As somebody who you're coming to it books first to the comics, I had read some of these comics ahead of time before I got into the books, but they sort of were lost on me because I really had no idea what they were from. So I was just sort of flipping through them. What's your thought on the audience, Jay? I suspect it's for a younger audience than the books might be. 
but I'm not sure if that's deliberate or if that's just like part of the comic book genre. I, I don't know enough about comics in general to say. I know that there are comics that are designed for adult readers that you know, younger kids wouldn't get or content is too mature or something like that. And there's a lot of stuff in this that is pretty, pretty mature content. There's a lot of violence, there's sex, there's evil deeds and senseless violence and things like that. That, uh, and to be fair, most of that's in the book. Yeah. I guess the one piece that seemed elevated to me was the sexual either entendres or overlays or just the prominence of it. I, I know that some of that was in the books, but it seemed, at, and maybe it was just because of the way it was presented, but there seemed like there's a lot more of it here. One of my problems with the adaptation here is I think it's a juvenilization of the story. I think that King's story has enough nuance in it that the events that take place are developed. The characters have enough nuance that you can start to understand their motivations, even if they're terrible. This felt like it was simplified to the point that it kind of felt like it was like a somebody who was much younger than the audience for the book rewrote this to appeal to him or herself. Mm. And it was just like, cool line, tough guy, another cool line, another tough guy, and then like, tough guy is slapping a, a woman for no reason, and then like another... <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So, yes, we get the point, Jay. Uh-huh. Tough line, cool lines, sexy times, etc. Yeah, sure. All right. So, th- so that there's that point. So maybe the the adaptation is not appealing to the right audience. But what about the art? I mean, Jay Lee is a very well respected artist. What, what what are your thoughts on the overall look of the the comics here? Because this really is the first time, other than the movie which we shall not name that we actually get to see Roland and some of the other characters. I know that Jay Lee's reputation precedes him and I respect him as an artist. I am not a fan of the choices he made here. He makes the mundane look grotesque and the grotesque look horrifying. I really had a hard time looking at his art in a lot of pages of this adaptation. And that might be a very deliberate artistic choice. He might be thinking, this is a world that has moved on. This is a world that has been affected by some sort of plague or holocaust that has mutated animals and caused slow mutants to form and things like that, and the landscape to be barren. So why shouldn't it be grotesque? So maybe that is a perfect marriage of King's vision and Jay Lee's artistic talents and artistic choices. But his execution is just really, really difficult to look at. There, there are a couple of pictures of uh, Rhea of the Coos that, yikes. <laughs> as bad as I ever pictured her in my mind when reading Wizard in Glass, this was a step beyond. It's not bad. There is a lot of skill there. I just, um, I thought it was over, overly grotesque. So I read Jay Lee's Namor the Submariner comic in the 90s when I was way into comics. What I liked about that series and his art was that it was very iconic, 
and Namor, who's always always an angular superhero, like he had very much a straight line face and, and jaw. It worked well with that comic. Here, my biggest problem was that most of these scenes seem very static. Mm. And I know comic books in and of themselves are static. They are single pictures. They're not animated. It's not a movie. But good artists can make it seem like the characters are fluid and in motion. And all of these seem very posed. And getting back to your piece on like, oh, we're going to show you cool, you know, here's a cool line and here's a tough guy line. I thought the same with the poses, like the poses were overly posed and scripted. And then the lack of backgrounds also made it seem like they were very singular situations that they weren't set anywhere, but just sort of in a place. So I can see where you're coming from. I didn't find the art grotesque like you did, but I did find it lacking in that sense. A lot of silhouettes were used. So it it obscured a lot of the detail and a lot of the features. If they subtract the background, and then if the foreground is silhouettes, then it becomes not very much at all to see except shapes. All right, Jay. Well, we, we talked a little bit about the adaptation as a whole. We talked about the art, but certainly you must like the story pieces, right? And the and the narration and the, the telling of the story. I did not like the narration in this comic book adaptation. <laughs> it really did read like a teenager retelling the story from memory. But it also sort of, I think this is part of the adaptation choices thing that I was getting at earlier, where there's only so much space to tell the story within the the covers of this comic book. So you have to leave things out. It felt like a biopic where they need to cover a person's entire lifetime in a two-hour movie. So it kind of jumps from high point to high point. This is something that we all know about. This is the next thing we all know about. And this is the next thing we all know about. This adaptation felt like it was doing that too. It was like, this is this moment in the story. And then this moment in the story and then this moment in the story and the things that happened between those moments those are the things that were important because they linked those things they gave the characters their motivations they helped us the the audience understand what was happening and made us care about what happened next and without that connective tissue it just seemed like a series of moments it was kind of like a Zack Snyder movie it's just a series of moments series of of wonderful looking scenes, but not a lot of story connecting them. So I could agree with that. And I do think, you know, when I read it, if you remember, I really enjoyed Wizard and Glass. I yeah. Especially especially the middle part. For me, I didn't mind this adaptation when it came to that point because it seemed to hit all the the major beats along the way. Granted, it didn't have the the nuance that we were talking about and the and some of the backstory and the motivation we can't get that and the way i think that we they try to make up for it is this narrator and the narrator for me was odd because i think both you and i have said we're not a big fan of the the speech that goes into the whole wizard and glass piece which unfortunately a lot of super fans of the dark tower really pull out and keep doing the thank you sigh and long days and pleasant nights and sort of this formal overwrought language. And the narrator does that too, a lot. Mm -hmm. And for me, the only thing I could think of when I thought of the narration was that this sounded like um, the narrator for Dukes of Hazard or something. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Instead of Bo and Luke Duke, we get, well, here's Roland and Elaine and Cuthbert. Look at them coming down on their horses. And who do they see there but a pretty young lad? It's Susan Delgado. And it just was a little bit overwrought. And I, I didn't get, there were times in the Dark Tower series where King addresses us directly. Yeah. But it's King's voice, which is unique in itself. This is a unique voice, but it's not King. And it's it seems to be some like bard telling a tale of, of yore, but it's like, who is this character? And if I think if the character, the narrator were named and was an actual person, that might help some, but it's it's just sort of this third party narration over and the language just doesn't work and it just it it really took me out of it. Yeah. The word choices of the nar- that the narrator used because it wasn't a named character that would have improved it so much. It felt like somebody doing a fake accent. Yes. It didn't feel like it was part of the story. And every time the narrator was catching me up, he was taking me out of the story. So There's got to be something that we did like about this, though. I mean, this is a unique position because the other interesting thing about the comic is it has the benefit of being published and written after the entire series was done. Yeah. So we had talked before about how King may have had some of idea of how the story was going to work from book one to book seven, but there seemed to be a lot he made up along the way. For sure. Whereas this book has the benefit of knowing where the story is going to end up and how to pull it in. So how does that change your view of this or, or what's unique about the adaptation here that we don't get from Wizard and Glass itself? Well, I, I think one of the, the interesting and, and I think pretty cool things is that We meet the Crimson King basically on day one of this story. Mm. And I know I'm not a big fan of the Crimson King as a character. You know, by the time we meet him in book seven, he's he's gone crazy and he's, you know, you know, ha ha, he he, I'm the Crimson King, he he, you know. (laughs) But here he seems quite menacing. Here he seems like a real threat, not only to Roland, but to the you know, all of existence. It seems to be, he already has his plan to take down the Dark Tower. Mm. And when we meet him, we see that he is, he's drawn as a half human, half spider creature, which makes sense for when we meet his offspring, Mordred, in book seven. We get to meet the Crimson King when I suppose he's at the height of his power. He actually seems to possess most, if not all, of the wizard's glass spheres of the entire Maryland's rainbow. And he purposely gives one up, the pink one, and sends it to to Magus to, I guess, is it to help uh, Farson or something? Or is it to control Farson? That part's not clear to me. No. But in King's book, the wizard's glass shows up and we don't know how it got there or why, or if there even was a reason. It's sort of portrayed as a a power unto itself, and it it's always being passed from person to person, victim to victim. Here, it's deliberate, and here it is part of a plan, and here it is the plan of a very powerful and very evil being. So, getting to know a little bit more about the Crimson King uh, before he started, he he's. Um, <laughs> I guess it's pretty cool, and I guess building on that, there's a lot more magic here. Mm. By the time we got to Wizard and Glass, magic was definitely a part of the, the Dark Tower story, but the beginning of it, 
like in the gunslinger and in drawing of the three magic was just kind of a little bit here we can see that magic's a really big part of roland's world and it's a really big part of everything that has to do with the dark tower yeah and that makes sense for what we know came at the end of the story for it to have always been around at the beginning of the story yeah so we see martin just sort of zap out of gilead by drawing himself a door and ending up in mages where he needs to be just by drawing a door and walking through it and then we're immediately told it took us i don't know how many weeks and months we talked about like is martin the man in black and is he the randall flag etc and it's like oh yeah he's all those things these are all of his names and that's all given to us right away here Mm -hmm. to be fair king spent decades figuring it out the Crimson King and and Martin mentions a prophecy, and the Crimson King seems to know that Roland might be the one to to destroy him, and that sort of sets that up much earlier than we get in the books. Mm. That Roland is a a figure to be feared, and that needs to be destroyed early, even as a young boy. Here, that they realize his threat and what he might grow up to be. And I almost wondered if you had said earlier you didn't know why the Crimson King allowed the the pink globe into the into mages and i wonder if part of that is just to set up the fact that it ruins roland at the end right like mm. he gets to see his uh the love of his life destroyed what we don't get though that is important in the in wizard and glass is that it's the pink sphere that makes roland aware of the tower yes that's not in this adaptation at all like it's the ball and the globe and Roland enters it. And when he sees Susan dies, he also sees the tower. And it's almost like he has to make that choice. That mm-hmm. it, it's what sends him on his quest. And we don't get that here. In fact, Roland's just left the shell of himself at the end of this. Um, yeah. It, it definitely ends on an empire strikes back down note. I imagine that's what comes in the next issue of the comic or something, but yes, uh-huh. which based on your feelings, Jay, I don't know if we're ever going to get to. I'm not in a big hurry to read any more of these. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad because I do think there is an opportunity to bring the Dark Tower to a different group of people or at least open up your eyes or even for those who have read it. Like I said, having the the advantage of having all the books published could really make these, you know, you could tighten up the story in a way that makes sense and make, you know, cut off some of the cul-de-sacs and, and pieces where it doesn't work. But um it just doesn't seem to work in this adaptation for whatever reason. I suspect that one of those reasons is that they tried to put too much story in into too too few pages. We were talking about adaptations earlier. You have to make choices about what you what you can leave out, and they had to leave out too much. I think when you looked ahead to see what some of the other adaptations or how some of the other adaptations were constructed for later stories. They spent a lot more time in the adaptation. They gave the book, The Gunslinger, that adapted into, did you say it was 25 issues? I think so, yeah. Something like that? About that, yeah. And that's a shorter book than Wizard and Glass yep. by by almost half. So 25 for half the size of book versus seven issues for twice the size of book. I think that's giving everybody involved the, the credit uh, for the good work that they, the hard work that they put into this <laughs> yeah. to make this. 
that's where they they were probably you know kind of backed into a corner of just being limited in scope and if they had 25 issues to work with this could have been a lot better yeah so maybe maybe in the future we will roll forward with the some more of these and see how a little bit more room to breathe might uh, improve things this is a really rock star cast of of people involved in the creation of this so yep the potential's there yep all right well there must be some fun stuff that we can take away from this right jay yeah i had a a good line or at least a pretty decent line it's one of the tough guy lines i guess that i was <laughs> talking about <laughs> and it's boys who come into places like this learn bad habits kid dying is apt to be one of them so not bad right yeah and that's in the the showdown between the big coffin hunters and the quartet correct i believe so so mine is not actually from the comic itself but in the in the edition that i had there's a there there's an open letter from stephen king where he's talking about this and granted he has he's trying to pump up the the story and obviously he's not going to denounce a a series when he's made this deal with marvel but he talks about how much he enjoyed comics as a child and how he thinks that there are a lot of potential in his works to be adapted into comics. And he mentions he thinks Firestarter would be a good adaptation into comics. And he talks about potentially doing a uh, an original project that would be like Zombies Take Over the World, which sort of hints at Cell. But then he mentions another one. He thinks this would make a good comic. He calls it a time travel story where a guy finds a diner that connects to 1958 but you always go back to the same day and one day he goes back and just stays leaves his 2007 life behind his goal to get up to november 22nd 1963 and stop lee harvey oswald jay that sounds like a book we know yeah that sounds really familiar king must have had this story like just bouncing around in his head Mm -hmm. you know we talked a little bit about it in a couple episodes ago like he made no secrets about i have this idea and i want to do something with it and i'm going to try it out anywhere i can And he eventually made it happen it's almost like he talked himself into it yeah we've mentioned 11 63 enough times on this podcast maybe that qualifies as a dark tower adjacent thing. <laughs> yeah exactly story. so one last thing that's sort of fun stuff and it's also in this open letter and Despite the fact that King's pumping up these comics, he also hedges his bets, you know, because he always says, like, he doesn't mind giving rights away to stuff because the books always exist. Mm-hmm. Even if the TV show's shitty, who cares? Because the books exist. You can always go back to the books. He says that here, too. He's like, some of these things will probably suck, but who really cares? Readers can always go back to the books, which don't suck. Although some critics would beg to differ, which is a good line as well. I like self-effacing King. Yeah. He also mentioned that he'd love to write Spider-Man, that that would be the one comic book character that he'd like to write for Marvel, which can we make that happen? Like, I would buy that. Yeah, I don't think he'd do a bad job. No. All right. Well, I think that we're going to leave the uh, graphic novel adaptation behind us. And on that note, hopefully you enjoyed it. If you have thoughts on the graphic novel adaptation or if there's specific ones that you feel are better and more worth Jay's time and my time to discuss let us know that because I know that there's a lot more that come after this and I've read some and I know there's a little Sisters of Lori one that's not bad because I think it's a short story so they're able to cover that fairly decently so yeah maybe we'll get to that sometime or maybe not at the very least if there's comics 
fans out there, which I think there are, let us know if there's ones you think we should do. But if not, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Jerusalem's Lot. That is a short story that can be found in Night Shift, and you might be able to find it in certain editions of Salem's Lot as well. But Night Shift is where it was first published in a collection. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we'll cover graphic novel adaptation of The Dark Tower. I missed it. What? <laughs> we'll cover the graphic novel. <laughs> I say what the screen says. F you, San Diego.